We are uh, in Galatians, uh, Lesson 5, and today is the 9th of November, 2008. Let's uh, bless God. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Lord our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has selected us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and safeguard you. May the Lord illuminate his countenance for you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance to you and establish peace for you. Uh, this week we're looking at uh, Lesson 5 of Galatians uh, in your workbook. Uh, we'll be focusing on Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. <clears throat> and if you don't, do not have a workbook, you may be asking yourself, why... Uh, uh, why have we not yet uh, begun actually studying uh, the text uh, from the epistle of, of, uh, to the Galatians? And uh, a reminder uh, to those who don't have a workbook or haven't been following along with books simply listening, uh, remember that we are setting the stage. We're defining the words and the logic uh, and the topics that Paul is going to be uh, focusing on as he uh, goes through uh, Galatians. We've seen that, uh, that oftentimes uh, language is... Uh, is not only a means to communicate, but language can also be a barrier to our understanding. And in this regard, we have, under, we have seen that, in fact, the, uh, the, uh, the language of, uh, of the apostolic scriptures and our focus in the, uh, in the epistle to the Galatians, the language may, in fact, be foreign to us, uh, and, and the language may, may be obscuring the truth from us as opposed to revealing it. And certainly, with, it, with the backdrop of, uh, as we've seen with the backdrop of, of the Protestant Reformation and the use of Galatians, specifically by uh, Martin Luther and other reformers, to uh, distance and divorce themselves from Roman Catholicism, it has in fact become a, 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 uh, a level and a theological uh, uh, strata and, and almost uh, a, a concealing sometimes of uh, what the true uh, topic is. Uh, certainly the book of Galatians is, is uh, uh, considered to be settled theology for the vast uh, majority of those who would follow after uh, Yeshua as Messiah. And what we're attempting to do in this, in this study is simply to, to re-examine if in fact we do know the, the, the topic if, in fact, we do know uh, the words being used, and uh, if so, then all, all the better. We, uh, we will benefit from it, uh, if from a study. If, if not, then uh, we will be uh, taken once again back to, uh, back to the uh, foundation of Scripture to understand it as God intended it to be revealed, as opposed to us in, in, uh, understanding it simply on the basis of our own life experience and our own theological perspective. Um, if you uh, if you have a workbook uh, that only goes up through lesson five, uh, or excuse me, I think through lesson six, 
then uh, later on this week, uh, in, with God's uh, strength, I will be posting additional lessons to it. I'll keep them separate so that uh, so the workbook can be compiled. Uh, and then, of course, once we get to the end of this uh, of this course, uh, I'll recompile the whole thing in a single. Uh, PDF file, a workbook for those who want to use it. Uh, but for those who only have up through lesson six right now, I'll be adding, <coughs> with God's strength, I'll be adding some additional lessons this week. So look forward for that. Um, remember where we've come from in all of this so far up through lessons one through introduction and then also lessons one through four before we get into lesson five. Remember that we started with the call of Israel and the fact that God had, had, uh, had ordained that the world would have uh, the truth revealed, the revelation of himself and who he is revealed through his servant Israel and the people of Israel, the national collective and also the individuals of the people of Israel, that God would reveal himself to the nations through Israel. And it was the duty of Israel then to draw the nations uh, as God prescribed. And we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that, this, uh, that, that, that the way that they would draw the people uh, uh, would be their following, uh, their following the lifestyle and the teachings of God in his holy scripture. And that would be a revelation to the world that uh, they were, uh, and, and that would draw them to the wisdom of God and the lifestyle of, of righteousness. And it was that that God would use to draw them. And we see that in end times. We looked at uh, Isaiah chapter 2. And end times, that it would be the same thing. The Torah would go forth from Zion. Uh, the Torah would go forth through Israel, God's ordained mouthpiece. And all the nations would come. And they would come worship at the mountain of the Lord. That would, in, first, in, in our first lesson, we saw that this was Israel's call. We saw in our second lesson that the problem was that, we're, that, that sometimes having pagans, having Gentiles who had not completely... Uh, departed from the idolatrous ways was a dangerous thing. God had uh, warned Israel against, uh, against following after the ways of the nations around them. And we see at the same time that he's giving instructions, we looked at this last week as well, we, we see the same time he's giving instructions that includes both the native-born and the ger toshav, the stranger or the Gentile that lives among you. Uh, so we see that uh, this almost... Uh, this difficulty. It, after after the uh, Babylonian captivity in the 6th century BCE, uh, 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 little over, uh, which began and then ended uh, over 500 years before the birth of Messiah, that as Judaism was reestablishing itself and getting back to Scripture as its foundation, that Ezra and Nehemiah, but specifically Ezra and, and uh, the Great Assembly, went to great extents to uh, make sure that the people were focused on the Word of God and using the Word of God, establishing in addition to that tradition that helped keep people focused upon the Word of God as their directive. Idolatry... Uh, was greatly diminished after that, and we would say that Israel, as a national, as a national body, never returned to idolatry again after the Babylonian captivity, and and so we see that the uh, the problem of having pagans too close was solved by well, we just won't have pagans at all, or more importantly, Gentiles. We won't even allow Gentiles in our midst. Unless, and this is the rabbinic solution, uh, was let's just turn those Gentiles, since it's hard to figure out who's good and who's bad, let's turn those Gentiles who live among us, let's turn them into Jews. And uh, how do you do that? Well, before, uh, before about the 2nd century BCE, uh, uh, to be Jewish was an ethnic uh, uh, statement. If someone was Jewish, then they were uh, genetically connected to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and uh, coming from one of the 12 tribes. Uh, after about 200 of the uh, before the common era, we actually see that 
that that uh, began to be blurred, uh, following after the religion of uh, Judaism or the Jews, uh, the religion of Israel, uh, made you, uh, uh, that would have considered to be a part of the covenant community, but in about the se- uh, second century uh, BCE, we see that uh, instead, now it's to actually c- uh, make someone Jewish by going through a ritual, uh, a ritual conversion to Judaism. Uh, to be converted to Judaism, and Paul uses this uh, shorthand word, circumcision, because that was one part of it for males, was to be circumcised. But we remember, this is a long process, the rabbinic solution of circumcision, uh, that is to turn Gentiles into Jews, uh, was a long process, or not a long process, but an involved process, that included uh, the offering of an offering, in the temple, uh, actually first to accept both the oral and the written Torah and pledge allegiance to the, both the oral and the written Torah uh, um, and uh, to have to go through uh, 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 circumcision, the act of circumcision uh, for males and then uh, lastly an immersion uh, and the, as we've seen the Talmud says that when, uh, when the Gentile, the convert comes up out of the water of his ablution his immersion, that he will be a Jew uh, indeed, that he will be an Israelite indeed. In fact, there'd be no difference between uh, be him, be, between him genetically or her genetically than if they had been born in, uh, in, a, in a Jewish uh, home. So that was that was part one of the of the rabbinic solution. Last week we saw that part two of the rabbinic solution went is okay. Now we have now we have these Gentiles that live among us, these uh, ger toshav, which then the Septuagint uh, translates into Greek. Uh, the uh, in in these instances where it's identified as a covenant member, it translates it uh, proselytos or proselyte. That's where we get the word proselyte in English from. Is convert? They're converts. They're converts to Judaism. Instead of them just simply being Gentiles who who worship the God of Israel and live among the among Israelites, now they actually become Israelites as uh, as the the rabbinic solution of circumcision uh, uh, outlined. Now we have now the, how are we going to deal with the rest of the Gentiles, the Gentiles that aren't in that category, that have not yet gone through circumcision or conversion to Judaism, or those who are actually pagan. And for that, we saw that in about 20 of before the Common Era, that uh, the two main uh, branches of Pharisaic Judaism, the House of Shammai, Beit Shammai, or the House of Halil, Beit Halil, uh, came together, and there was a meeting to decide how are we going to deal with with issues of clean and unclean and Gentiles who are not converts to Judaism. And from that, we saw this dramatic thing that, that, uh, that the Talmud tells us is a, the day was uh, worse than the day of the golden calf, more grievous than the day of the golden calf, because uh, uh, guards, armed guards at the meeting, murdered people from and uh, uh, scholars from the house of uh, Halil, bit Halil, and uh, then they took a vote, and these 18 measures, or the halakha, the the rules that uh, Shammai held to with regard to clean and unclean and, and interaction with Gentiles, they became the standard. So from t- about 20 before the Common Era, when the 18 measures were enacted, until about 80 of the Common Era, or before the 20 before the Common Era, until 80 of the common era, so a period of, of about 100 years 
we see the 18 measures are the rule of law for Judaism and anybody who wanted to be considered pious within Judaism. So even those sects other than the Pharisees would still consider these to be measures of measurements of piety. And we see this with the apostles we're going to see later as we get into Acts. So these 18 measures became the way that you, that you would interact with Gentiles and, and recognition of certain rules uh, and the substrata of rules to keep Jews and, and Gentiles separate. Uh, which we would call the 18 measures. Uh, the 18 measures were in effect until 80 of the common areas we saw last week, and, and then they were annulled. But remember, we have this problem that the rules were so, uh, so ingrained, so became a mark of piety within Judaism, uh, not just Pharisaic Judaism, but all Judaisms, uh, that we see that in, in 80 of the common era, even though they were uh, technically uh, annulled, uh, as the Talmud tells us, we see that they're still in effect, especially the substrat of rules. And uh, Avodah Zarah, the, uh, the tractate in the, in the Talmud, actually has many of these very same rules uh, still active within it. We see that in the, at the, in the late 1st century of the Common Era and early 2nd century of the Common Era, that Eliezer ben Hyrcanus, who is uh, a disciple of who's a disciple of uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai, which would make him a Halilite, or someone from the house of Halil, actually keeps, continues to keep the standards from the house of Shammai with regard to the 18 measures. And in fact, we see him uh, eventually excommunicated because of his unwillingness to abandon certain parts of these 18 measures. And we're going to see that this is a difficult thing for all of the disciples of Yeshua as well. They too are having a difficulty, and we're going to see have a difficulty disregarding these 18 measures uh, while they were in effect. But even after they're no longer technically in effect, we see even, even uh, uh, normative Judaism has issues with, uh, or at least some within it, have issues with the 18 measures, still not wanting to let them go. And, and with regard to that, we see uh, within the Talmud itself and within Judaism even today, uh, remnants of the 18 measures still in effect, even though uh, the Talmud tells us that they were annulled by a what it calls a voice from heaven. Let's get into this, uh, this week's lesson now, Romans 14 uh, and also 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. What we're looking at in these two, uh, in these two uh, or three passages is an issue that re- is issues as they relate to the 18 measures. We're going to see specifically when we get into Galatians chapter 2 the difficulty that, that the disciples, Peter, and as Paul says, even Barnabas was carried away by their, their hypocrisy, have with disregarding the 18 measures. Paul deals with some things of the 18 measures within these passages, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he tells us the correct way that we're supposed to be approaching these things, not to outright discard things, but to examine them in light of Scripture, and more importantly, to examine them in light of the common fellowship that we have in Messiah, both Jew and Gentile. This is the reason why we're going to go over this this week, is for us to reestablish, or to re-examine, rather, (coughs) these passages in light of what we've learned with regard to the 18 measures. This is from Romans chapter 14, 2. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. And uh, this is from Matthew Henry, a renowned uh, uh, um, commentator from a classical Christian perspective, 
certainly one of my favorites of Christian commentators. Matthew Henry on Romans 14, verses 1 through 23. This is part of his commentary. Another who is weak is dissatisfied at this point. It is not clear in his Christian liberty, but rather inclines to think that the meats forbidden by the law remain still unclean, and therefore to keep at a distance. From them he will eat no flesh at all, but eat herbs, contenting himself with only the fruits of the earth. Matthew Henry, of course, takes the uh, classical Christian perspective on Romans chapter 14, and that's what we're examining. We want to see, is that, is that a correct perspective? And I hope by the time we finish, we'll, we will see that not only is it not a correct perspective, but it actually obscures the very important truth that we'll discover here that will help us to understand Galatians, specifically Galatians chapter 2. Here's the questions that we had, and I, and I put in a workbook for us to ask. Why do some passages of the apostolic scriptures seem to negate the commandments of God? Is everything clean, or is there something that I'm missing in these passages? What is the big deal? Eating meat offered to idols. How does that apply to me today? A lot of people say, well, I don't even know anybody that worships idols, so what, what's the big deal? Does it apply? And I hope by the time we get finished with the day, we might be able to have an answer for that. Uh, is every day the same? Why do some people think that the Sabbath and the Feast of Leviticus 23 have no place today, and yet still think that Sunday and Easter, or uh, Christmas, I would add, are important? Did Yeshua do away with the food or purity laws? What do they have to do with Gentile inclusion? Why are we even looking at this today as, as a part of our preparation for uh, studying Galatians? And lastly, if the ritual aspect of the law has been done away with, why did Yeshua and his first disciples not act like it? Or at least tell us conclusively. Now, in some people's mind, they think it's been told conclusively. And I hope by uh, the, end, the, the completion of next week's lesson, we see that, in fact, uh, um, that, it's, that it's, it's not as clear-cut as some might think. But uh, even, even if you step back from, the, from that threshold, uh, where, where precisely did Yeshua say, by the way, I think that you should start eating pig? Um, uh, because after all, uh, that would be a good thing. As, as uh, many people who claim Messiah as their master would uh, uh, make a point and make, make a, 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 a decided point of eating ham on Easter. Uh, what's what's the connection here? <laughs> oh, I can, I've been uh, uh, Messiah's been resurrected. Let's eat some pig. Uh, where where would they get that? Where would they get that idea? Let's uh, let's dig a little deeper though into this. Talk about this classical Christian theology states, and, and this is uh, this is what I would uh, summarize it uh, with regard to this. A paraphrase: Jesus came and did away with the ritual law, <clears throat> and other than uh, the way uh, uh, that people read Paul, uh, there's just no way you could ever come up with that. Uh, in fact, we, we know that in, 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 in uh, Matthew chapter 5, Yeshua says, Do not think I came to abolish the, the law and the prophets. But not that I came not only to abolish, but to establish, to fulfill, to make it stand up and, and see it in its correct light. So we see that the, the very words of Yeshua 
are, are contrary to this idea that the ritual aspects have been done, done away with. Um, that he came to do away with the ritual law. What, we, what of course, uh, questions we often answer uh, uh, those questions with is, can you tell me what is ritual law and what is, what is moral law, as they would describe, or what is uh, civil law? Can you go to the law? Can you go to the Torah? And you can, can you show me what's ritual? One of the things that we know is the first things that people come to when they, when they go through this exercise, of course, is they immediately pick out the things that seem Jewish to them. Uh, for instance, the eating of kosher, uh, the, the, the way someone might dress. Um, uh, they would say the ritual law involves offerings or sacrifices, uh, uh, none of which we would, we would uh, necessarily uh, deny, uh, but categorizing it as ritual. Would, would the Sabbath be ritual? Or would that be moral? Uh, certainly, if you look at the, what is called the Ten Commandments, uh, most people would consider that to be the moral, the moral portion of, of the law, uh, where the Sabbath is there. <clears throat> of course, the, cl- the, the classic explanation for that is, well, but it's been switched to Sunday. Uh, and we're going to see, as, as Matthew Henry, uh, in his commentary on Romans chapter 14, uh, all of these things, uh, and those who go th- to such lengths, to annul uh, the law are, are, in, are, are attempts simply to redefine what law means. Uh, that they would never uh, consider there to be no law, simply that, that there's a new law. And we would simply ask the question, uh, why does there need to be a new law? Is it because you're uncomfortable with the Jewish things or what you see to be Jewish things? And uh, I would simply call all uh, the disciples of Yeshua, the disciples of Messiah, to remember that he is Jewish. And our identity should be tied up in Jewish things because he's Jewish. And our love uh, for him should be expressed in a love for the people, uh, the land, the language, and the customs of God's chosen people, Israel. And it is a real mark, I believe, of a disciple of Messiah to love Jewish things. And, 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 and sadly, I believe it is a mark of an errant theology that despises Jewish things. And I would challenge people uh, to re-examine their view of moral, civil, ritual, law as it's divided by classical Christianity. And they'll discover that they will find no divisions in Scripture such as this other than in their own commentaries uh, they'll find nothing in Scripture that would that would ever describe the law of God as anything other than a unified whole. Uh, we can see that that not only does the Torah call all of the law the commandment singular, but also Paul himself speaks of all of the law, all as tradition holds six hundred and thirteen commandments, all of the law. Paul, in his instructions to Timothy, says the commandment. Uh, it becomes a commandment. It's not something we can slice and dice and pick and choose what we what we want to what we want to adhere, adhere to it or not. What it is is a recognition that the Almighty God has come down and has uh, has interjected into uh, this world a revelation of Himself, who He is, and what His standard for righteousness is. The Torah, as 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 David does in in Psalm 1 and in Psalm 19 and in Psalm 119, he, he shows us that, that the Torah, the law, is the revelation of the Almighty God 
and his standard of righteousness can draw us and will draw us to him. Uh, and, 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 a, and a disregarding of the very law of God, exchanging it for something new, uh, is, 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 not only, is not only dangerous, but is unscriptural. Let's look at uh, how this classic view, uh, how this class Christian, classical Christian theology, theological view of the law, what it does to, uh, to, 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 to denigrate our understanding of, for instance, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 10. It's a wonderful passage in the Talmud, uh, the Talmud uh, in, in Shabbat, uh, Tractate Shabbat 116a and then carrying over into Folio B, where it describes a, a follower of Yeshua, a Gentile follower of Yeshua, and uh, and and how he how he views uh, the law, and how uh, the follow uh, the, the 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 Jewish onlookers and uh, those participating in this uh, this story are 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 much uh, much more in agreement that Yeshua is a keeper of law. Listen to this: Ima Shalom, <coughs> that is Elliot, Rabbi Eliezer's wife, was Aber, Rabbi uh, Gamliel's sister. This would have been in the first century. Uh, somewhere around uh, uh, probably 80 or 90 of the Common Era. Now, a certain philosopher, a Gentile Christian, lived in his vicinity and bore a reputation that he did not accept bribes. They wished to expose him. Uh, there's conflict between uh, the, 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 the Christians and the Jews here. So she brought him a golden, this is Rabbi Eleazar's wife, uh, Ima Shalom. She brought him a golden lamp, went before him and said to him, I desire that a share be given given me in my father's estate. Divide, ordered he. Said he, Rabbi Gamaliel, that is, to him, it is decreed for us where there is a son, a daughter does not inherit. In other words, she went to him and said, listen, I need to, I want to, I want to inherit something. And he said, go ahead. It's okay because, uh, because it doesn't matter if you're, if, if, if you're the daughter, uh, a son can inherit as well. Where there is a sign, Rabbi Gamaliel said, where there is a son, uh, a daughter does not inherit. He replied, since the day that you were exiled from your land, the law of Moses has been superseded and another book is given. He's speaking of the New Testament. Wherein is it, it is written, a son and a daughter inherit equally. Which, by the way, you won't find that anywhere in the New Testament, in the apostolic scriptures. So, it's interesting. Uh, the next day, he, that is Rabbi Gamliel, brought him a uh, Libyan ass, a donkey, and he said to him, Look at the end of the book, where it is written, I came not to destroy the law of Moses, nor to add to the law of Moses. And it is written therein, A daughter does not inherit where there is a son. Said she to him, Let thy light shine forth like a lamp. Said Rabbi Gamaliel to him. And an ass came and knocked the lamp over. Uh, what he's saying here is, uh, they're actually quoting Yeshua's words from Matthew chapter 5. And they're saying, look, here, look even in your own book, in the, in, in the, in the uh, apostolic scriptures, look even in your own book, you're not going to find that, that a daughter doesn't inherit where there's a son. Look in your own book, your own master says that he didn't come to destroy the law of Moses, nor to add to the law of Moses. Uh, what, what we see here is that Judaism of the first century, and uh, as recorded in the Talmud, saw Yeshua... As, a, as one who did not come to abolish the, ta- the Torah, the law of Moses. <laughs> and, and even Judaism saw that. And yet, 
sadly, this Gentile Christian in this, in this example uh, simply wants to uh, usurp, usurp to, to place a, himself above uh, what he would consider to be outdated Jewish law. It's a very interesting thing that Judaism, this is the only quote, uh, this is only the only quote that we find um, of Yeshua in, in the Talmud. And what is that quote? That he didn't come to annul the law. Uh, let's look at Romans uh, chapter 14 in the classical way, the way that po- mo- most people read it. Uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 1, and I'll read through verse 6. Receive one, receive one who is weak in the faith, but do not dispute over doubtful things. For one believes that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One, verse 5, One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observe it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he, does not, for he, gives, thank, he gives God thanks. And he does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. Now here's uh, Matthew Henry's this expanded, Matthew Henry's commentary on Romans 14. Uh, to quote, there was a difference between, between them about the distinction of meats and days. These are the two things specified. There might be some, uh, there might be other similar occasions of difference, while these made the most noise and were most taken notice of. The case was, was this: the members of the Christian Church at Rome uh, were some of them originally Gentiles and others of them Jews. Now those that have been Jews were trained in the observance and the ceremonial appointments touching meats in the days. This which they had been bred in the, bred in the bone with them could hardly be out of their, gotten out of their flesh even after they turned Christians, especially with some of them who were not easily weaned from what, had long, what they had long been wedded to. They were not well instructed touching the canceling of the ceremonial law by the death of Christ and therefore retained the ceremonial institutions and practiced accordingly, while other Christians that understood themselves better and knew their Christian liberty made no such difference. Concerning meats, one believeth that he may eat all things. He is well satisfied that the ceremonial distinction of meat meets into clean and unclean is no longer in force, but that every creature of God is good and nothing could to be refused. Nothing is un- unclean of itself. He's quoting from uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 14. Another who is weak is dissatisfied at this point. It's not clear in his Christian liberty, but rather inclines to think that the meats forbidden by the law remain still unclean and therefore to keep at a distance from them. He will eat no flesh at all, but eats herbs, contending himself with only the fruits of the earth, see to what degrees of mortification and self-denial a tender conscience will submit. None know, but that those that none know, but those that experience it. How great both the restraining and the constraining power of conscience is concerning days. Those who taught themselves still under the same, under some kind of obligation to the ceremonial law, esteemed one day above another kept up a respect of the times, the Passover, the Pentecost, new moons and feasts of tabernacles, thought those, day better, those days better than other days, and solemnized them uh, accordingly with particular observance of binding them to some religious rest and exercise on those days. 
those who knew that all these things were abolished and done away with by Christ's coming esteemed every day alike. We must understand it with an, ex with an exception of the Lord's Day. <laughs> oh, he, can't, he can't get rid of Sunday now. Uh, uh, as unanimously observed, but they made no account, took no notice of those antiquated festivals of the Jews. Here the Apostle speaks of the distinction of meats and days as a, th as a thing indifferent when it went no further than the opinion and practice of some, of some particular persons who had been trained up all their days to such observances and therefore were the more excusable if, if they with difficulty parted with them. But in the epistle to the Galatians, where he deals with those that were originally Gentiles but were influenced by some Judaizing teachers, not only to believe such a distinction and to practice accordingly, but to lay a stress upon it as necessary to salvation and to make the observance of the Jewish festivals public and congregational. Here the case was altered, and it is charged upon them as the frustrating of the design of the gospel falling from grace. The Romans did not did so out of weakness. The Galatians did it out of willfulness and wickedness. And therefore the apostle hands them thus differently. This epistle is supposed to have been written sometime before that to the Galatians. Uh, that is actually completely uh, demonstrably false now. The apostle seems willing to let the ceremonial law, whether by decrees or to let it have an honorable burial, now these weak Romans seem to only be following it weeping to its grave, but those Galatians were raking it out of its ashes. Wow, pretty powerful stuff. Judaizing teachers. Um, uh, and his view that Galatians was written before Romans is, is or Galatians written after Romans is, is, uh, um, is now, uh, it's not, no one would hold to that, that uh, Romans, in fact, was a later book, uh, one of the latest books. So we see that, that in fact, Galatians here, um, uh, that Galatians was one of the first, uh, even before the Gospels were written. Uh, so, it, Matthew Henry is, goes to great lengths, uh, obviously excluding Sunday from recognizing one day being over another, but he's certainly uh, very, very strongly. Uh, he actually calls, uh, in, in his reference to the Galatians, he actually calls the keeping of, uh, of the dietary laws and the keeping of the festivals and the Sabbath as willfulness, willfulness and wickedness. Is it possible that God's instructions could ever be considered wicked? Uh, it's remarkable to me when you see the hatred, the anti-Semitic hatred that some of these uh, uh, classical commentaries uh, still hold on to. It's, it's remarkable. Uh, today, of course, they toned this down so that it wouldn't seem anti-Semitic. Its roots remain the same. And then we, we, when we examine the second century and the texts from the second century and the division between the church and, uh, and the synagogue, we see that uh, men like Justin Martyr and Marcion, in fact, are uh, uh, you know, virulently anti-Semitic and speak in anti-Semitic uh, language. And, of course, their theology becomes a theology of the classical Christian view. Uh, what I would simply ask men like uh, Matthew Henry, uh, long since deceased, uh, uh, may rest in peace. What I'd ask him to do is, will you read Deuteronomy 13 with me? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign of the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, 
You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put evil from your midst. How is it possible that a Jew living in the first century, if he is if he is a pious man or woman, knows the instruction of Deuteronomy 13. How is it possible if he understood the words of Paul to be what Matthew Henry and others have said that he would not have considered that Paul was worthy of being stoned? How much more the very, the master himself, if Yeshua came to abolish the law? As, as Matthew Henry says with his, the coming of Christ that such was abolished, if Yeshua came to abolish the law, then Yeshua, by definition from Deuteronomy chapter 13, should have been stoned. This goes back to the same idea. How do we validate a message from God? It can only be validated by, validated by what comes first, not what comes last. God does not undo what he says by saying something later. God is not a man that he should change his mind. God speaks his word and it stands for eternity. When we begin to believe that God uh, gives a new revelation of himself or his righteous standards that undo a previous revelation, we are in danger. No wonder Christianity as it exists in the world today has fallen so far from its lofty height, even in the days of even in the days of Matthew Henry, uh, from its lofty height to where it is often indistinguishable from the paganism around it. It's no wonder because the revelation continues to be watered down, undone by a later revelation, by a later commentary, by a later, inst- uh, uh, by a later uh, revelation, a later uh, view of the way the things are going. No wonder no one looks to the word and trembles. Because it's all just simply being amended or added to. Rather than understanding that what came first as God revealed himself was the proof that anything that came later had to, had to, must adhere to what came first. Deuteronomy 13 gives the test. And if the test, if the, if the prophet can't pass, then the prophet is not a prophet from God. Anyone that tells you Jesus came to uh, annul the law, to do away with the ritual law, if he claims to speak as a prophet from God, then he's a false prophet. Deuteronomy 13, verse 5 says that he redeemed us. God redeemed us. And he doesn't want us to be enticed away by those who would pull you away from the way that God commanded us to walk. This is the way that we should put away evil from our midst. Not to listen to such, such things. And we're going to continue to, to, to come back to this point as we look at Galatians itself. 
Now let's go specifically back to Romans chapter 14.1 because something, something is, is disturbing me a little bit. Uh, Matthew Henry considers this, uh, this, these, these, uh, this passage in Matthew 14 to be an explanation as to uh, a disagreement between uh, the Roman congregation, that somewhere of a Jewish persuasion, raised Jewish, and somewhere of a Gentile persuasion. And the Gentile ones, being the strong ones, understood their liberty. They weren't, they weren't bound by the law, so they could do whatever they wanted with regard to eating and and holy days or whatever but however the Jews they were they were the weaker of the of the of the group so uh, and of course Paul and it's Matthew Henry's explanation here Paul gives them uh, a little bit of grace to allow them to continue even though it was wrong as as Matthew Henry would say a sign of wickedness as Matthew Henry would say but the thing that diffi- the difficulty I find is right there in verse 1 go back to Romans chapter 14 verse 1 I'll read here what it says it says receive one who is weak in the faith but not to dispute, but not to dispute over doubtful things. Doubtful things. What are doubtful things? Now, in Matthew Henry's mind, doubtful things are uh, the kosher laws and, and the laws uh, regarding festivals, the instructions regarding festivals, and the Sabbath. Those are doubtful things. Of course, I would offer to Matthew Henry, Sunday would be a doubtful thing since it didn't exist as a, as a worship day until uh, its third century, never even codified until the, the fourth century of the Common Era. But uh, we won't dispute with him since, since uh, uh, no doubt uh, now he knows the truth. Uh, Romans chapter 14.1 Doubtful things. What are doubtful things? Let's go to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 1. And I'm going to read through verse 44, and then I'll, or verse 14, and then I'll skip down to verse 44 and read through verse 47. Leviticus chapter 11, 1. This is what Matthew Henry and those like him would say are doubtful things. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. I don't want you to hear what he said. The Lord spoke. Moses didn't come up with this. Those who would call the Torah, the Torah of Moses, as if, as if, to say that it is Moses' law, or the law of Moses, uh, fail to recognize that uh, one of the oft-repeated phrases in all of Scripture is this phrase, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel. In fact, that's what he says right here in Leviticus chapter 1. Now the Lord said to, spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, speak to the children of Israel, saying, these are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth, among the animals whether uh, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, and chews the cud, that you may eat. Nevertheless, these that you may not eat among those who chew the cud, and those who do not have cloven hooves, the camel, because it chews the cud and does not have cloven hooves, it is unclean to you. Uh, and the word unclean there is uh, is going to be uh, um, uh, tame. And uh, in addition to that, uh, when it's translated into uh, Greek, it's going to be akatharos, akathartos. And uh, so we're going we're to come back to this. And in fact, we'll look at this again uh, in a later lesson and next week as well. Uh, but, but um, excuse me, let me get back to verse, uh, let me get back to verse uh, 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 5. The rock hyrax, because it chews the cud, it does not have cloven hooves. It is unclean to you. The hare, because it chews... Uh, the cud it does not have cloven hooves it is unclean to you the swine though it divides though having cloven hooves yet it does not chew the cud it is unclean to you their flesh you shall not eat and their carcass you shall not touch they are unclean to you verse 9 these you may eat of all that are in the water whatever in the water has fins and scales whether in the seas or in the rivers that you may eat but in all the seas or in the rivers which do not have fins and scales all that move in the water or any living thing that is in the water they are an abomination to you that is a very strong word by the way abomination they shall, uh, they shall, they shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh, 
but you shall regard their carcass as an abomination. Whatever on the water does not, does not have fins or scales, that shall be an abomination to you. Uh, and verse 13, And these you shall guard as an abomination among the birds. They, sh they shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, the falcon, after its kind. Uh, these are the basic laws of kashrut, the basic laws of kosher, uh, of what would be considered kosher to eat, uh, what, was, what is permissible to eat. Um, and and uh, something that, uh, that uh, most... Uh, most, uh, certainly, of course, uh, Orthodox Jews would follow. Uh, with addition to that, there, there are other laws of kosher that, be, be, that, that create a, a, an additional set of rules associated, but these are the very basic laws that define eating of meat. The eating of meat. There are other kosher laws in addition to that, but the eating of meat. In fact, Leviticus 11 has some additional ones. Skip down to verse 44. Uh, and this is what I would, uh, I would want... Uh, uh, our esteemed uh, commentator, Matthew Henry, to comment on um, uh, uh, when I get an opportunity to see him in the world to come is to ask him, uh, Leviticus chapter 11, uh, verse 44, did he ever read it in associating with doubtful things? Uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 1. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy. For I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And the, the verses ahead of this, just between where we stopped and where we're picking up again, talk about eating uh, insects or whatever else and what is permissible and what isn't permissible. Verse 45, For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. He's defining holiness here. Verse 45, this is the law of the animals and the birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. Does that sound like a doubtful thing? Is there any doubt when he talks about swine or pig in the modern translations, what he's talking about? Is that doubtful? Can anybody read and go, I'm not really sure if this really applies to me today. Uh, no, they'd only read that if they misread Paul. Because nowhere else in the scripture will you ever come up with that idea, well, that doesn't apply to me anymore. Certainly, when God speaks it, doesn't it last? Isn't it forever? We're going to see here in a second. Isn't it forever when God says it? And if God were to undo it, may it never be. But if, in the, in, in the applying of man's logic to this. If God were to undo it, wouldn't he say it in as clear terms as he said it here? Go to uh, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. I'll read through verse 14. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood. Nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. This is that phrase we talked about last week. Dear Toshav, or a, uh, a Gentile who is dwelling and worshipping with Israel. Verse 13. Whatever man of the children Israel, or of the strangers who dwell among you, who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of the flesh, of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is in, the, in its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Is that true? 
Is that true? I mean, is that an established statement? Matthew Henry uh, wants us to believe that we can eat anything. Here God said you can't eat blood. Uh, and, you know, and I find it very interesting that those who would still adhere to that Matthew Henry's theology uh, read Acts chapter 15 where it speaks of blood and ignore it as well and uh, um, have, have no problem at all uh, eating things uh, that still uh, are even made of blood. Uh, uh, Matthew Henry, the, the good, uh, the good uh, Puritan uh, that he was in, uh, in, the, uh, um, in the 18th century, uh, certainly would have eaten uh, a delicacy of, of England uh, blood pudding. Uh, it's very interesting to me that, that these instructions are only valid because, in their mind, because they were the Jews. Uh, and, I, and, and in his mind, uh, I'm sure he did not consider himself to be Jewish, so it didn't apply. Go to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, verse 18, and we'll, we'll continue through verse uh, 24. Uh, are these doubtful things? These doubtful things. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Uh, Paul has come back to Jerusalem after being absent for a period of time. He's gone specifically to celebrate uh, a feast, uh, in, in this case probably Shavuot. Uh, when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And so here's the congregation, the elders of the congregation of Jerusalem are glorifying the Lord because of Paul's ministry among the Gentiles. Uh, and they said to him, verse 20, And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. Uh, in, in Matthew Henry's line, m- mind, of course, these, James included, and elders, uh, and this congregation of Jerusalem, myriads and myriads, which in our uh, translation would have to say thou- tens of thousands upon and tens of thousands. So something uh, in the neighborhood of at least 20,000 of this congregation in Jerusalem uh, they were zealous for the law. Uh, they certainly would have not have considered Leviticus 11 to be a doubtful thing. Verse 21, But they have been informed about you that you teach all Jews who are concerning Gentiles to forsake Moses. As, 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 many, as, uh, as Matthew Henry says here, uh, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. Verse 22, What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear you have come Therefore, verse 23, Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads that, that all may know that, the, that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing but that you yourself also walk um, uh, it, it faithfully. Uh, what, what we see here is that uh, the, uh, James and the, and, the, and the elders of Jerusalem recognize that these, these rumors about Paul are false. Uh, Paul has been accused of telling uh, Jews specifically to abandon uh, the, the Torah and uh, not circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. They're saying that's false. We know that's false. Here's the way that you can prove it's false. Take four men, these four men who are in fact under a Nazarite vow, 
and they want to end their vow. And if you go back to uh, Numbers chapter 6, you can see the procedure for entering a, end, ending a Nazarite vow. Uh, going back to Acts chapter 18 and following, we, we understand that Paul himself is under a Nazarite vow during this time, where it says he shaved his head before he had taken a vow. That's the way that you start a Nazarite vow, is by shaving the head. Then the measurement of the hair growth during that period is the measurement of your vow. The hair was cut off again when the vow was complete in the temple itself. Uh, and, in fact, it was offered as a type of an offering. The hair was put upon the altar and burned up. Uh, it was the measurement of the vow that they had, during that period, that they had abstained from drinking or eating anything that came from the fruit of the grapes, from having cut their hair, cutting their hair. Uh, and uh, and in that process, then, their vow, was a, it was a matter of sanctifying or, and uh, consecrating themselves. So the period was over. By the way, if you have a Nazarite vow, it has to be a terminator. It has to be an end to it. Uh, it was to be taken care of during a certain period. That's why it's probably Shavuot. It's not uncommon to find the vow being made, uh, even today, variations of that vow, not the vow itself because there is no temple, but a variation of that vow, uh, beginning uh, at, at, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and ending with Shavuot, where you'll find that uh, Orthodox Jewish men don't cut their hair or shave their or, or shave or trim their beards. Uh, that relating back to this this uh, this. Uh, normal or oftentimes normal period of taking a Nazarite vow. Well, here Paul is supposed to take them. If you go back to Numbers chapter 6, the completion of the process we see in Acts chapter 21 as well, Acts chapter 22, is in fact the offering of offerings. Paul uh, apparently has not gotten word that the law is no longer effect, that offerings don't, don't count anymore, if, that's, if you want to take Matthew Henry's view. Because he's going to go and he's going to follow through, not just with a customer or a tradition, but the very instructions from Numbers chapter 6. The offering of offerings as well. He goes to great expense. He has to pay for five. It's not a cheap thing. The offerings are expensive. So we, so we see that, is this a doubtful thing? Is Paul speaking out of one side of his mouth to one group of people and another side of his mouth to another people, group of people? No, it seems more likely, as Acts 21 says, that James says that basically Paul has been misunderstood. People are saying that Paul has said things that he has not said. A misunderstanding of Paul. Well, it, it is to our benefit to discover if we've misunderstood Paul then. Go to Acts chapter 28, verse 17. Paul himself is speaking. Paul is in Rome, ironically. This is at the end of Paul's ministry. Romans, the book has long been written. Galatians, decades before, completed, circulated. If Galatians, and if Romans... Chapter 14, for example, say what men like Matthew Henry says, you'd wonder why Paul could say this in Acts chapter 28, verse 17. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. Uh, and this would be those of the, of the wider Jewish uh, um, community in Rome. So when they had come together, he said to the men and brethren, Though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our father, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go because there, were no, they, there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal, appeal to Caesar. Not that I have done anything which, which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have, I have called for you to see you and speak with you because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. It says he's done nothing against. Nothing against the people or the customs of our father. So he's even including... Uh, certain in his own certainly in his own practice, he's even including his own practice that he basically re remains 
remains, uh, from, uh, from all appearances, a pious Orthodox uh, Jew of the first century. Um, which is, an, is really a remarkable thing if you consider it. And we're going to look at this later on as we get deeper into, uh, actually into the book of Paul and his deep love, not only for Gentiles, but of his brothers and sisters uh, uh, of Israel. His deep love for both groups uh, uh, and yet remained, remained uh, completely a part of the uh, 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 Jewish community. Uh, um, the Jewish community even that, that would have nothing to do with Yeshua. He still remained apart and accepted uh, within them. It strove to remain accepted within them. We're going to look at that later as we get deeper into this. So are these doubtful things? Go to Second Timothy chapter uh, 13, verse uh, chapter 3, excuse me, verse 14 through 17. Doubtful things, doubtful things. But you, 2 Timothy 3.14, but you must continue in these things which you have heard and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that with your and that from your childhood known have known the holy scriptures. He's speaking of the Tanakh. There would have been no uh, other scriptures up until this point, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Messiah Yeshua. Uh, so the Tanakh, what some people call the Old Testament, which some people would consider to be outdated, old-fashioned, no longer necessary. Paul says, "This is what you were instructed in." This is what's able to make you wise for salvation through faith. And then verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction of righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. What we, what we see here is Paul's telling Timothy that all scripture is given by God and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction of in righteousness. Matthew Henry would have us believe that Leviticus 11 and Leviticus 17 are profitable for nothing except to, uh, except to voice and to Judaize people in a form of wickedness. How dare anyone say the words of God produce wickedness. Paul here, the very one that gave Matthew Henry the words to comment upon in Romans chapter 14. Paul here in instruction to Timothy, 2 Timothy written after, well after, one of the last books that he would have written. Uh, says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Not wickedness, Mr. Henry. Righteousness. Righteousness. This is the revealed righteousness of God. It is not a doubtful thing. Romans 14, 2 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 10 are not doubtful things. So what is Paul speaking about? Go back to Romans chapter 14. Let's look at it. He, there's the one who eats all things and there's the one who eats only vegetables. Is this a debate about what kind of meat to eat? Or whether to meet, eat meat at all. You know, where is it that where is it that someone can get that it's a it's a debate about eating meat, uh, as opposed to whether eat, eating all meat or some meat. And in fact, if you read Second First uh, Corinthians chapter eight, you can see that this is a debate about something else. That this is a debate about the kind of meat, not necessarily whether it's clean or unclean, but more importantly, what constitutes clean versus unclean. Uh, commentators that don't have this background and refuse to study the Torah and refuse to study the basis 
for the apostolic scriptures or the language uh, used in the apostolic scriptures uh, in extant texts to discover what it really means are guilty are guilty of trying to make it fit their theology as opposed to allowing the scripture to define itself. Leviticus chapter 11, Leviticus chapter 17, 11 through 14, only some meat is food. Not all meat. Only some meat is food. In fact, the vast majority of meat is not food. The Torah doesn't forbid the eating of meat. You would go back to Romans chapter 14, uh, according to Matthew Henry and other co- commentators would say, well, uh, uh, Rather than eating, eating, eating meat, they would just eat vegetables. The Torah doesn't say you can't eat meat. It's just only some things are food. Uh, vegetables, uh, uh, why are vegetables considered the only safe diet? In this case, from that view, why are vegetables considered the only safe diet? And the reason is, we're going to see, relates to the 18 measures. Rome has, as Matthew Henry correctly identifies, Rome has a significant Jewish population. The surnames at the end of Romans, we can see the names that are being listed, excuse me, uh, are in fact names of Jewish people. They're Jewish names. So it's a significant number of Jewish people in the congregation of Rome. Rome actually had a very large Jewish population. Uh, This is a debate about the applicability of the 18 measures for the followers of Yeshua. In other words, are all these 18 measures still in effect? Should I keep the 18 measures? There's members of the Jewish congregation, of uh, of the congregation of Yeshua, in Rome, actually still were adhering to the 18 measures. They had a difficulty giving them up. Some of them, especially. Paul understands that although tradition is fine in and of itself, uh, if, if in fact they, it points those towards the commandments and helps them keep the commandments, it's fine. But in a, on, on the contrary, a tradition that actually annuls the word of God separates between Jew and Gentile, as we've seen. God's word specifically places the native-born and the ger toshav, the stranger who dwells among you, side by side, keeping his commandments. So if a, if, if, if a tradition comes along to separate the two, then obviously this is a difficulty. This is something that has to be dealt with. That's what Paul's dealing with here when he's talking about in Romans chapter 14. Listen to this. This is from the Mishnah. Actually, this is from the Babylonian Talmud, and it's quoting part of the Mishnah uh, from Avodazera uh, 2a, and I'll skip down to 8a as well. Mishnah. On the three days preceding the festivities of idolaters, it is forbidden to transact business with them, to lend articles to them or to borrow from any of them, to advance or receive any money from them, to repay a debt or receive a payment from them. These are the festivities, festivities of the idolaters, Calendra, uh, Saturnalia, uh, Cratesis, the anniversary of the ascension of the throne, as well as the royal birthdays and anniversaries of death, of, speaking of Caesars, etc. This is Rabbi Mayer's opinion, but the sages say a death at which burning of articles of dead takes place to attend by idolatry, where there is no such burning, there is no idolatry. However, the day of shavings, one's beard, or lock of hair, or the day of landing after sea voyage, or the day of release from prison, of an idolater holds a banquet for his son, the prohibition only applies to that day and that particular person. And I'm just giving you a, a, a taste of this, but Alvoda Zera actually has a long list of things you're not allowed to do on certain days because to do so would be to participate in idolatry. To touch something and to receive in a marketplace, to receive uh, to purchase meat because it might have been offered to idols. That it's a participation with idolatry if you eat something offered to idols. Uh, uh, this is uh, these are, these are instructions that those believers in, in Rome, some of those believers were still saying, wow, man, it really bothers me uh, that, that I can't go 
to the marketplace and, and, and buy meat, you know. And the problem is a lot of my a lot of my brothers and sisters at the congregation are still are still are going to the marketplace and buying meat, and they don't know that it might be offered to idols. And not knowing if it's been offered to idols, they're participating in idolatry. That's the clear teaching of the sages. It's the clear teaching of the eighteen measures. And not only that, I can't you know even if I go to the market, I can't even buy vegetables from the market if it's during these certain days. You know, and, and they're all the time. And the list here is is, is pretty long in Avodazera, uh, and it's true. All of these, you know, every time the Caesar did something, a birthday or whatever else, it was they'd offer offerings, and it was anytime you purchased there. If you went and purchased from from the market on those days, you gave money, and they would go and they'd buy offerings. So did I participate in idolatry? Is the question being asked? And that's the that's the answer Paul's giving in Romans chapter fourteen. He's saying, listen, there's some of you that have a difficulty. Now, what does he tell the people who have a difficulty? That the 18 measures still has some background for them. They're having a difficulty with eating things. They just rather just eat vegetables. Because then I don't have to know if this meat was offered to an idol or not. What is he saying? He's saying to them, fine. That's fine. That's okay. Notice, he's not dealt with any of the 18 measures here that, that, dis, that distinguish or separate between Jew and Gentile or between Jew and Jew. He's simply dealing with, 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 the, with the personal things as what do you eat. But look at what his instruction is to, uh, to... Actually, let's go to Romans chapter 14 and read this whole uh, uh, part again. Romans chapter 14, verse, uh, verses 1 through, um, verses one through uh, 6. Uh, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but do not dispute over doubtful things. For one believes that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. So the one who meets, eats all things is the one who says, well, listen, these 18 measures, the parts of the 18 measures, no longer apply. They never applied. They aren't God's word. They're tradition. Uh, uh, whereas the other one says, eh, I still have a difficulty with it. He eats only vegetables. Listen to what Paul says in verse 3. Let not him who, dis- who eats despise him who does not eat, and let him not who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. He's looking at it, so look, those people who are not adhering to the 18 measures with regard to food, uh, with regard to what's clean or unclean food, and they, what do they buy in the marketplace, uh, if God accepts them, and you know that God accepts them, you know why are you judging them? And on the reverse, he's saying, listen, those of you who are eating everything, don't look at the, the more orthodox in your midst to point the finger and go, boy, you people are just really too stuffy. You know, and force them, force them to give up their convictions in this regard. Verse 5, uh, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. This is, this is exactly what Avodazera is speaking of. Uh, when can I go to the market? Oh no, there's like, you know, out of the 365 days of the year, there's only about 10 days I'm allowed to go where I'm actually three days before or three days after where I'm not actually participating in idolatry, you know. <laughs> one person seems one day above another. One thing is more important, man, I can't go to the market today. Let's go to the market today. No, no, I can't go to the market today because uh, uh, yesterday was Caesar's birthday. Uh, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He observes the day, observe it to the Lord. He does not observe that day to the Lord, does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, he who, for he gives thanks. He does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat, and gives God thanks. The point being, listen, uh, if, if someone is, is trying uh, uh, to be pious with regard to uh, not so, so wanting to distance themselves from idolatry that they're adhering to the 18 measures in this regard, that's okay. As long as they're not making everyone follow that same thing. As long as they're recognizing that's the, and, and doing it as being thankful to the Lord. 
it's okay. It's okay to be more orthodox than others, as long as you're doing it unto the Lord. Wow, what a what a what a shift we see. Uh, these 18 measures uh, and the and the substrate of the 18 measures are difficult. Are difficult for the followers of Yeshua to abandon, now, especially why they're still effect by by the rest of Judaism. Uh, remember, this is this is still in effect. Uh, this this Romans Romans probably was written uh, somewhere in, in 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 the 50s, and so we're we're, we're seeing that this is going to be good for another generation or 30 years at least before they're they're uh, uh, annulled by the Sanhedrin. But uh, in fact, we know they're never really truly annulled. Uh, Romans Romans 14. Go skip down to verse 14 of Romans 14. Romans 14 verse 14. And we're going to talk about this next week, but it's very interesting to me how the translators deal with this, and it's and it's it's disturbing to me uh, because uh, in my mind many of them know better. Romans 14:14 14, 14 says, "I know and I'm convinced by by the Lord Yeshua that there is nothing unclean of itself." This is New King James translation. Nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Is that right? Is that right? Is it possible that what is nothing's unclean? God in Leviticus chapter 11 said, "These are unclean. They're an abomination to you." I'm sorry, people didn't come up with it first, and then God said, "Oh, it's okay if you have that conscience. If you whatever your conscience says, yeah, that's 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 okay." In other words, if you say that it's unclean, then okay, it's unclean. No, God said in Leviticus 11, He's the one that defined it. These are the things that are unclean. I defined them. Excuse me for paraphrasing. He defines them, not man's conscience. Is that what He's talking about here? And in fact, the translators are playing a little game with us here, because they're doing a switch. And we get to next week, I'm going to show you more in depth this little switch they're doing. But unfortunately, for us, reading it in English, uh, this little switch is completely misleading. That word there, unclean, is not akathartos. The same word we get from the translation of the, of the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, Leviticus 11 in the Septuagint, when it says unclean, tameh, tameh is unclean. When it says, or impure, when it says it, it uses the Greek word akathartos. Here the word is koinos. It's not unclean. It's common. I know and am convinced that the Lord, Yeshua, that there is nothing uncommon, or excuse me, there's nothing common of itself, but to he who considers anything to be common to him, it is, it, it, it is common. What is that word, common? What's the difference? When we look, look at Acts, we're going to see specifically this difference. But generally, uh, so that you know in advance of that, uh, the word common is not the word unclean. Koinos and akathartos are actually not even related. Common, as it's used here, is the same thing that you would read from the Torah where food, that is food, in other words, meat that you could eat or bread that you could eat normally, if it was in a holy setting, you were not allowed to eat it if you were in an unclean state yourself. In other words, things that were normally permissible to eat had further restrictions at various times. Common. Common. Uh, you would not treat the holy bread in the tabernacle as if anybody could eat it. That's common. Eating meat in and of itself 
from a kosher animal, from an animal Leviticus 11 says it's okay to eat, is the first step. Can I eat it? The second step is, where did it come from? Did it die of itself? Then that which is unclean actually becomes, well, it's, it's still unclean, but there's a similarity to common there, where it is technically clean, but the fact that it died of itself is a prohibition. That makes it not available for us to eat. It is a rabbinic, here is one of those things, it is part of the 18 measures that defines normally acceptable meat, that which is tahor, or that which is permissible to eat, that which is not, excuse me, not tameh would probably be a better way of saying it, as common, and they're still not edible. What, what are they? Avodah tells us, things that have been offered to idols. Things that have been, if you can't assert, ascertain whether they have been offered to idols. Uh, the, the Talmud goes to great lengths to describe this, that even in the presence of a Gentile, you can't leave the room and then come back and eat something that was left. Even though it was okay before you left the room, even if it was, if you brought it yourself, if you leave the room, it becomes, it becomes common. Common. You can't eat it. It doesn't become unclean. It becomes common. It, the very presence of Gentiles make things common and unclean. Uh, and this is, this is precisely what Paul's getting to here. It's the 18 measures that he is dealing with in his discussion. We're going to look some more about this uh, common and unclean next week in our lesson. Let's move on to Romans chapter 14, verse 4, one day above another. I know we're going kind of long. We'll be wrapping this up here shortly. Romans chapter 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes a day, observe it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. He who gives thanks, for he gives thanks. He who does not eat, to the Lord. He does not eat and gives thanks to God. So is every day the same? Is that what it's saying? Uh, if so, Paul should be stoned, according to Deuteronomy chapter 13. But he's, he's not saying that. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. This is a doubtful, is this a doubtful thing? And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. That is, he made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all his work which God had made, created and made. I'll go back to the same thing for, for Mr. Henry and for, uh, and for other commentators like him. God's very specific. He made the seventh day holy. He blessed it and made it holy. Show me where he did, where he stopped making it holy. Tell me where God specifically says the seventh day is no longer holy. According to Mr. Henry, it is actually an act of wickedness to adhere to the seventh day. You know, Sunday, of course, he would still think in effect. Ironically, of the Puritan mindset, uh, Sunday had many of the same. Uh, instructions regarding laws regarding the, the Sabbath. They call it the Sabbath. It's a funny thing. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. Is this a doubtful thing? Then the Lord sped the, spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. This shall be the first month of the year to you. Uh, it does actually matter the day. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of the month, every man should take himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if a household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your 
account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall now keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Are days important? Then the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost of the lintel of the houses where they eat it. They shall eat the flesh of that night, roasted in fire, uh, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat it raw or boil it with water, but roast it in fire with heads, uh, with, with its head, with its legs, and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning. That which remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire, and you shall... And thus you shall eat it with your belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and, you shall, and your staff in your hands. You sh- so you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. And then he goes on to describe the Passover experience. Go to, down to verse 14. You, so this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Forever. Is that a doubtful thing? I keep asking the question, how long is forever? Verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and the seventh day shall be a holy convocation to you. No matter of work shall be done, no matter of work shall be done on them. And that which everyone must eat, that only be prepared by you. So you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this same day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinances. Everlasting ordinance. Passover. Feast of Unleavened Bread. Does it matter? Is this a doubtful thing? Do you have a problem remembering what forever means? Exodus chapter 16, verse 20. Notwithstanding that they heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, speaking of the manna, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So they, ga- so they gathered every morning, every mo- man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. So it was. And the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. All the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you like today, and boil what you boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up to morning, as Moses commanded, that did not stink, and there were not worms in it. Moses said, Eat today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that the same people went out the seventh day to gather, and the Lord said to Moses, and found none. And Moses, the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given to you the Sabbath, therefore he gives it to you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day, so the people rested on the seventh day. Uh, for those who doubt whether this is uh, still in effect, I would uh, simply ask you where it was taken out of effect. Uh, Leviticus chapter 23.1 And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. This isn't Moses' idea. This is God's idea. Say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be, proclaim to be holy to convocation, these are my feasts. Uh, as a cat, as a, uh, uh, interjection here, uh, I, I take issue with people who call the feasts of Leviticus 23 the Jewish feasts. They're not the Jewish feasts. They're the feasts of the Lord. They're the feasts of the Almighty. He gave them to us as gifts, as holy convocations. Look what the first one is listed in, in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 3. Six days shall be 
work shall be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. And he goes through and he deals, details this, starting with Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Shavuot, or Pentecost, uh, uh, Yom Teruah, or Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Blowing, uh, 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 then, then uh, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, and lastly, the Feast of the Tabernacles. Going through these seven feasts in Leviticus chapter 23, and he repeats it again and again and again. It shall be a statute for you forever throughout your generations. It shall be a statute forever. It shall be an eternal uh, decree. What part of eternal don't the commentators get when they read Romans chapter 14? A doubtful thing? I don't think so. By the way, to those who would who consider uh, that that possibly we don't know what day is the seventh day anymore, we lost track. Uh, you know, somewhere we lost track. So okay, so the seventh. So what does it matter now? Let's just pick a day and call it the seventh day. That's what some people do. And if you look at a European calendar, Monday is the first day of the week. Sunday is the seventh day of the week. Uh, I would argue that although you may have forgotten which day of the seventh day of the week is. The Jewish people have never forgotten which day of the seventh day of the week is. They've kept it for generations. And we know for certain from the day of Yeshua on that it's true. Did Yeshua know what day the seventh day of the week was? It was his custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Yeshua knew. Our Master knew what day the seventh day of the week was. And he rested on it. Is this a doubtful thing? Is it a doubtful thing? No, the 18 measures are the doubtful thing. The 18 measures, not the, not the Torah. Not the instructions from God. Uh, Romans chapter 14.5 says, says that, uh, that as long as you... Well, let, me not, no, let me not paraphrase. Let me read what it says. He observes, they observe the Lord... Uh, excuse me, uh, let each, verse 5, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Is that saying the same thing as Judges chapter 17, 6, where it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did was right in his own eyes? I don't think so. Heaven forbid that we even consider that simply because you esteem one day better than another and being convinced in your own mind is all that matters. Paul's not talking about God's instructions. Paul's talking about a level of piety that is, that, is, that is different from God's instructions. Righteousness is the standard of God. Sometimes we keep traditions in order to maintain that standard. Family traditions. What you do in your family, what I do in my family. Uh, be convinced in your own mind. But when it comes to God's instructions, no. It is not right everyone does what was in, in, right in his own eyes. It's not right. Now Paul himself in Acts chapter 18. Go to Acts chapter 18 verse 20. I'll read to you verse 21. And when they asked, speaking of Paul, when they asked him to stay longer with them, he did not consent. But he took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming, this coming feast in Jerusalem. He's talking probably of Shavuot. But I will return to you again, God willing, and he sailed from Ephesus. Paul considers no day above. Paul considers some days above another. Clearly, <laughs> uh, again, we, we ask, have to ask the question of some of these commentators. So Paul is just—he's a charlatan. He's a, he's a bait and switch artist. 
He says one thing to one people, another thing to another people. That may it never be. Paul, Paul, the pious man that he is, is nothing like that. He's being falsely accused, just as James said in Acts chapter 21. He's being falsely accused of one who's not consistent, of a hypocrite. Falsely accused. The, pagan, the days before a pagan feast, where we talk about one sting one day before another, the days of a pagan feast, there's not to be any contact with Gentiles according to the 18 measures. Uh, days before. Uh, and, and so we, the congregation, in, the congregation in, in Rome is having a difficulty, not just in Rome, but elsewhere as well, having a difficulty. Well, does he, you know, are we supposed to be keeping this? Right? These traditions? Paul's saying, fine. Those traditions that don't separate between, uh, between, uh, between congregants, between brother and sister, just be careful that you're not offending one another. Just be careful you're not offending one another. Uh, with regard to whether these are doubtful things, go real quickly with me to Isaiah chapter 66. I want to start in verse 15 because this talks specifically about days and about food. Listen. For before the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by sword the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves. Notice, this is, this is an end times prophecy. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination of the mouse, shall be consumed together, says the Lord. Well, Matthew Henry says we can eat anything we want. This is the end days. This is, this is, uh, this is Revelation 19 uh, here. Revelation 19.11, where he's coming with, with, uh, with thousands of his saints. Fire in his chariots like a whirlwind. And he's, and he's speaking against those who are eating swine's flesh and the mouse. Verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them. And those among them who escape, I will send to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pool, to Lud, who draw the bow in Tubal and Javal, to the coastlands far off, and have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Then, if Paul loves this, <laughs> then they shall bring all your brethren for, for an offering to the Lord out of all the nations, on horses and chariots and litters and mules and camels, to my holy mountain, to Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering to a clean vessel in the house, of the Lord, and I will take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth, this is Revelation 22 stuff, for as the new heavens and the new earth, which I shall make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Commentators like Matthew Henry, one day is no different from any other day except Sunday. That 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 the that the marking of the new moon, that the marking and the remembrance and the keeping of the Sabbath are are a sign of wickedness and weakness. Yet Isaiah chapter sixty six verse twenty three, speaking of the messianic age, says that all flesh will come before Him to worship Him, the Almighty, from one new moon to another and one Sabbath to another. If you're a follower of Yeshua, 
How could you forget which day is the seventh day? Are these doubtful things? I think not. 1 Corinthians, we're going to have to move quickly here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Uh, Therefore, considering eat, eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, there are, so, there are as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom, all, whom are all things, and we for him, and one Messiah, Lord, uh, Messiah Yeshua, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not every, there is not everyone that knowledge in everyone that knowledge. For some with conscien- uh, consciousness of the idol now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now he's speaking about the eighteen measures again. First uh, uh, Corinthians chapter ten verse fourteen. Uh, now therefore, brethren, flee from idolatry. Speak as to wise men. Judge yourselves what I say. A cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of Messiah? The bread which we break is it not the communion of the blood of the body of Messiah? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or whatever is offered to idols is anything, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the Lord's table in the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, and all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Again, he's speaking of the. He's speaking specifically. By the way, we see a contrast. He says one thing: idols are nothing. Other thing, he says another: demons. Which is it? Well, this is the point that he's making: is with regard to the eighteen measures. Uh, yes, it is something, but not in the sense that the eighteen measures made it something. That's why he's saying in chapter eight: there's. It's look. You're not participating in idolatry because you eat uh, meat from the marketplace. But he's saying, but you do need to flee idolatry. That's what he says in chapter ten or chapter uh, ten of First Corinthians. You do need to flee to idolatry. Uh, if you go to uh, First Corinthians, uh, First Corinthians chapter First uh, 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 Corinthians chapter ten verse uh, twenty-seven. Um, if any of of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat what is ever set bef- is set before you, asking no questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone asks, says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Be careful now what he's saying here. He's not saying, hey, don't ask, hey, is this pig or not? What's the question? Has this been offered to idols? Again, uh, this is a 18 measures issue, not a Torah issue. Verse 29, conscience I say, not your own, but that of the other. For what is my liberty judged by another man's... Why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I, e- why, why am I evil spoken of for the, f- for the food over which I give thanks? Verse 31. Therefore, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or the Greek or to the, or to the congregation of God. Uh, is it possible to thank God for a ham sandwich? Now, it is possible to thank him for it, but it's not for the glory of God. Giving thanks is not what makes it edible, or makes it food. Uh, we cannot claim that uh, claiming God's blessing at the same time disobeying his clear 
and uh, unmistakable commandments. These are not doubtful things. Romans 14, and the meat offered idols, and uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, 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 the doubtful things of Romans 14, and the meat offered idols of 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, are directly from the 18 measures and a substrat of rules associated with them. Even though the 18 measures may have made logical sense to those who are rightly concerned about idolatry and assimilation, they, uh, they created boundaries that separated between Jew and Jew and Jew and Gentile. That is what Paul is going to deal with in the book of Galatians. Paul recognizes that his purpose is an emissary to the Gentiles. He's an ambassador. It's a vital fulfillment of end times prophecy. We're going to see this when we get further into, into this book and in, into the book of Galatians itself. This is what is so important to Paul. He sees it as a part of end times uh, fulfillment of, of the gospel. Any acceptance of man-made rules that separate between believers and especially between Jew and Gentile is a message is a, is a is a action against the very message of the gospel. That and this is the gospel that the God's kingdom is coming, and it is time for us to repent. Let's uh, let's close in prayer by. Uh, um, reading uh, from Deuteronomy 8.10 uh, or excuse me from the Hamazon which is a reference to Deuteronomy 8.10 and the blessing of, 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 of God after eating. It is an important thing that's interesting to me that, that uh, um, uh, many people read Romans 14 and other passages and come to the conclusion 1 Corinthians chapter 10 come to the conclusion that we need to bless food for it to be edible and uh, scripture doesn't ever say that. In fact uh, it says uh, something quite different. It says that we should bless God. Well, make something edible. Is what a God said. It's food for us. This is Birkat uh, Hamazon. We bless you, Lord our God, King of the whole world, who feeds the entire world with his goodness, with love, kindness, and mercy. He gives food to all flesh because his kindness lasts forever. Because of his great name, we have never lacked food. May he never let us lack food. Why do we ask for this? So that we can praise his great name because he is the merciful God who feeds and supports everyone and does good to everyone and who prepares food for all his creatures which he has created. We bless you, Lord, who feeds everyone. Amen. God bless you.